Hello, my darlings, and happy Thursday. This is Pop Culture Mondays on Thursdays, and I'm your host, Brooke Hammerling. How is that? I'm trying each week. I try to do it a bit different. This is episode 45. This is so crazy. I can't believe that this is 45. Well, I hate the number 45 because it was Donald Trump's number, but I love the number 45 because it's my favorite hut in all of the land in Jamaica at GoldenEye. I always request hut 45. So there you go. Um, Anyway, guys, it's just little old me. And I'm going to tell you, I've had some stress dreams about this podcast, I, I had a very in-depth dream that I had two guests. One was the amazing Gary Cohn, formerly of Goldman Sachs. He did work in the Trump White House. We don't talk about those years. I understand his intention, I think, was probably that, you know, that place needed adult supervision and nobody realized how bad it was going to be until they were in there. But Gary Cohn is a really brilliant mind in finance. I've not asked him to be on my podcast. I, I don't know if he would say yes. I know him. He's been an incredible advisor of mine. But in my dream, he was the guest along with the beautiful Deborah Unger, who is the mother of Rebecca Unger, who works with me. And she lives in England. She's an incredible writer. In my dream, they were both guests. David, my producer, could not record them because he was doing something else. And we set it up and I was like, it's no problem. I was going to sit and have a phone conversation with each of them and record it on my end. A very vivid dream. And I sat in a car, in my car, in the rain, which is, it has not stopped raining in Los Angeles. So this is all feels very real. And I was in my car where I could get the best sound quality in my dream. And I was recording my conversation with Gary and then with Deborah. Deborah, I adore. I don't know why she made it into the dream because she's not involved in the finance world, but really long, in-depth, beautiful conversations. I was like, this is going to be an incredible podcast. And then David's like, you only recorded your voice. Like I didn't record the call. How do you record a call unless you have like some spy software? So anyway, just so you guys know, I'm dreaming now about, it took 45 episodes to actually dream about the podcast. So here we are. And I think because of that anxiety from the dream and just the utter exhaustion from the last week where it's going to be a week from today, this Thursday, that everything started to unravel, certainly in the tech world. So I want to start there because a lot of you listening will know every detail about what went on. And to be clear, a thousand percent more details than I do and a thousand percent more understanding. But there are a lot of people who sort of peripherally knew about it, sort of maybe saw it for the first time in their news feed or in the New York Times or the Daily Mail this weekend, or maybe they first read it in the newsletter. I don't know, but we're all in different stages of it. And I certainly am no economist. I am not a finance person. My, my expertise in finance is I know I need to make more money than I spend. That is it. That is the level of expertise. I feel like that gives me a leg up on some other people I know, but I bring in more money than I spend. I think that's the, that is my teachers at Rye Country Day will be very impressed that I walked away with that much knowledge because I was not very skilled in the department of mathematics or anything to do with numbers, but I have managed to live 48 years with that philosophy. And I, uh, at least 30 of those years as an adult, I have done just fine. But 
You know, I come from the tech world and I live online. I live probably more online than, than most. Um, the amount, I can't even tell you the amount of, of like hours I spend. Um, I stopped looking at that thing on my phone because it's just, it's an illness. But, you know, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, texting, emailing, news feeds, like all of that, podcasts, I am living and breathing this shit. And so I got it earlier than most because I was so connected to the people that were sort of sounding the alarm. And I and we'll get to that on Twitter. So the genesis of this Silicon Valley Bank, which is we're now what, five minutes in, it's the first time I've said it, we'll call it SVB. And for those of you in Los Angeles or <laughs> or uh, outside of LA, but have a connection to LA. SVB stands for something very different. It is the, our beloved clubhouse, the San Vicente Bungalows, uh, owned by the incredible Jeff Klein, who owns the Sunset Tower and um, is opening up SVBs in uh, Santa Monica and New York. Uh, so San Vicente Bungalows, called such because it uh, is a beautiful private members club that is just an oasis away from the rat race of of Los Angeles and it's on San Vicente in West Hollywood and it became branded SVB. And so it's very funny. There are a lot of people in LA that were like, SVB's closing? Why is SVB closing? What's happened? It was, it became a meme. It's very funny. It's very niche, very, very niche. But for this purpose, SVB stands for Silicon Valley Bank. And, you know, it's so interesting when I started my first company, Brew, the first brew, by the way, like the morning brews and all of those people, let's be clear, brew PR was the first brew in that sort of tech world named after my nickname, which was brew, the only way to shorten Brooke, but also, um, I'm a big coffee junkie. There were a lot of connections to why I called it brew. But when I first started Brew, I had just left San Francisco. I had been living there for many years and I moved to New York and I started this firm that was focused on entirely on technology companies, but I was in New York. It was unheard of. People thought I was nuts. And even though I was going to be launching Brew with some really incredible tech companies uh, on my roster and companies that I am so proud to still like have connections to today, like NetSuite, Oracle, I mean, amazing brands. But I was told by a couple of tech entrepreneurs that it would be really smart for me to open up my business account with Silicon Valley Bank because that would lend me credibility and cachet with the tech entrepreneurs. And I was like, a bank? Would get Like, what are you talking about? But it's, you know, it was sort of a status symbol. It's just like, you know, when you drive that car, it's a status symbol. When you have a certain handbag, it's a status symbol. And that's what SVB was for the tech community. It was a full on status symbol. Now, I would not have been able to open up an account with the $0.0 I basically had when I started my agency in my tiny little apartment in Greenwich Village. But because of the credibility of the founders I was working with, they were going to get me in there as a, a customer. And I was going to do it because we're all swayed by clout in some way. I thought, okay, well, if the Silicon Valley founders need to see me sort of um, bonafide, you know, I was sort of legitimized by having this account with SVB, which I, it just was absurd to me. I was like, oh, I was in the process of doing it. And had I done that, I doubt I would have left that bank. I mean, people don't leave banks, right? It's not one of those things that you're like, you know, shopping around for the best deal every few months or years. So if I had started my business in 2005 and, and used SVB, I'd probably be in a very different position today. I'd be probably completely comatose. <laughs> 
I'm somewhat comatose, but I would have been completely comatose. But it was an amazing, an amazing advisor of mine who said to me, I remember vividly at a dinner at the Spotted Pig as we were sort of going through what what I needed to do to get my business off the ground. And he's like, fuck those guys. You need a bank that's on your corner. You, I don't even think SVB had a branch at that point in New York. And if they did, certainly nowhere near me. So they were like, the advisor said, you know, you need to have a bank that you can walk into. You are a small business. You're going to be going in and out. You're going to be depositing checks. You need to have a person there that you can just sit and talk to. You need to be able to walk into the bank. And I don't think that a bank should be a status symbol for you and just go to Chase. And here we are. Thank you, Chase, all these years later. So that's just a, a little story just to give context of to what Silicon Valley Bank really sort of said in the tech world, it did provide a level of sort of legitimacy. Oh, you, you work at SVB or you bank at SVB. It was a status symbol. And it also was sort of the provider of a lot of fun experiences for the tech community. There are lots of events, conferences, parties, big conferences, little conferences, whatever. But you would inevitably see sponsored by that. You'd see the SVB logo on almost all of these things. I think they just had a conference in the midst of all of this. Uh, somebody had a conference in the midst of all of this. And the key cards said SVB, sponsored by SVB, as, as it was crashing down. So I'm not a believer of spending a lot of money on sponsorship sponsorships where your name is on a banner. I don't know what that provides you, but for SVB, they had bajillions of dollars that it was just a rounding error for them if they just, you know, threw $150,000 to sponsor an event and they get brand awareness and all the tech bros felt, you know, beloved by their bank. Now there's some tricky things that this bank got into. The bank didn't just act like a bank. It acted like my understanding, like sort of an investment bank, which I don't know, I don't think it was meant to, or anyway, this is not a financial podcast. We're not going to get into it. It, it. it will show you my true colors and the lack of understanding of that. But the bank did take on some risk and they were doing things, which is, you know, banks shouldn't really do that because you're putting, most people are putting their money in the banks to sort of sit there and to, you know, sit in a savings account, sit in a checking account, provide businesses with um, checking accounts and, and at corporate cards and um, payroll and all of that stuff. So they're not looking to play around with that. That's like you put in $100,000, you would like to see that money if there's a little bit of interest from your savings account, but otherwise it should just stay $100,000. Okay. Anyway, I digress. The problems seem to have arisen and there's so many podcasts you can listen to the New York Times Daily that came out this week that really describes it. I, I know Kara Swisher talks about it endlessly and on pivot and, and whatnot, though more of the emotional side of things. But there's lots of ways that you can figure out what went down. My take, however, is forgetting, just putting it all behind like the the risks that SVB took and how much money they lost and all of the things they had to do. It really started with the communications um, around what they were doing. And a lot of people in the in tech have talked about this on Twitter. So I'm not coming up with this on my own. This is not some massive revelation that I've had. It's definitely one that I've, I've talked to people about and thought about. But I come from a comms world. It was so much a communications error. Like this CEO, really in their management. And I have no idea who did their PR. I have certainly no idea who's doing their crisis PR. None of it's good. But basically what happened was 
there are lots of people who claim that they saw this happening. They knew this was coming. This was something they were foreshadowing. But for the most part, nobody really knew. Or the mainstream people didn't know. And then all of a sudden, a press release was pushed out by Silicon Valley Bank explaining that they had to uh, sell their stake at something that gave them this amount of capital. But if you were any sort of, you know, pay any sort of customer or person in that space paying attention, it definitely raised a lot of red flags. And the way they did it, they sort of issued it at a, at a really bad time. No communication ahead of time. There was no like, let's bring in our customers. Let's communicate to them directly. It was sort of just a press release that was like dur, 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 out there. And the communications around it was just horrible. And so you left people being like, wait, what? What the fuck is happening? And okay, you still could have saved it. You still could have been like, okay, okay, okay. We're going to get to the point. We're going to show confidence. And we're going to say, listen, this is all good. This is what we're doing. We've got plenty of capital. This is, you know, da, 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 da. This is not what they did. And they proceeded to just get worse and worse in their communications or lack of communications around it. And then this CEO, from what I've heard, I think his name is Greg Becker. I don't care. Another boring white man who disappoints us all. So anyway, he has a Zoom with many, many, many people that I understand are maybe the high net worth people or like a lot of venture capitalists, a lot of customers, a lot of very, very important people that had probably, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in that bank. And that were the sort of the, because the, if you look at the heads of the funds, they then are the people telling their investments what to do. So if you run a fund and all of your money is there, all of the funds are there, and then you say you have 300 companies in your portfolio, likely a majority of those companies are banking with SVB. So from what I understand from the people I've spoken to is he held a Zoom. Now, I work in the communications business. Optics is a really big thing. And so if you have a very panicky group of people, you need to instill as much confidence into them as you possibly can. What does that mean? I mean, just looking good, looking like you're not about to die, looking like you're strong, not disheveled and and putting out an air of confidence. My understanding, again, I've not seen this though, is that when he had that Zoom, I believe it was Thursday of last week, he, somebody described it to me as it looked like he had just taken cyanide, which, you know, not awesome. You don't want somebody to look like that. He looked like death. He portrayed a sense of like exhaustion and fear and just did the opposite of instilling confidence in people. And he didn't, he just looked pasty. He did not look the part of confidence CEO of a bank. And then the words that came out of his mouth proved that to be correct. And, you know, these guys, when they're put on camera, it's so interesting. I, I wonder if it would be very different if this had been just a call and not a camera or if it had been in person. I do think this sort of dynamic of computer and camera and seeing yourself might throw people because we've seen this time and time again with CEOs just literally shitting themselves and how they communicate with their teams. And it's just a bad thing. So this is no, no better. He was not speaking to his employees at this point that comes later. He was speaking with these, you know, investors and, and whatnot. And he said something, I'm not a direct quote, but he said something along the lines of, we've been there for you all these years. It's your turn to be there for us. And 
you know, I don't think an investor wants to hear that. And I know there's been a lot of criticism about the investors out there who have, you know, made a run for the bank, but, and I've been one of those people criticizing them, but to play devil's advocate, if I'm responsible for an entire, you know, group of founders and their money and their payrolls and all of that, and I hear that, I likely would have told my clients, my investments, I would have been like, get the fuck out. I probably would have. I would have taken my money out. So I I think I would have said to them, look, you do what you need to do. It's not my job to tell you. And I certainly don't want to be held accountable if you do, but I'm taking my money out. That's what I would have done. So I just need you to understand why I actually understand why this happened and why people took their money out. But it was just, it was like when you have a leak in your house and you're trying to like cover it with your hands and it just starts spreading all over and you just can't do anything. There's, it's no containment of that. There was a bank run. I mean, a good old fashioned bank run, which was meaning that everybody just, you know, just like the old movies ran to the bank to get their money out. And I think like something like $43 billion was taken out of the bank before everything shut down on Friday and the world's seem to be ending. And then on top of it, you do have very loud voices, Jason Calcanis, David Sachs, Peter Thiel, others out there, and and specifically Jason, and we'll get to that, out there on Twitter saying, get your money out, get your money out. And then you have Jason Calcanis, who I really like. Jason has been a really good friend to me. Jason has stood up for me in some really terrible situations. And I adore Jason's wife. I, I just, everything about Jason amuses me and delights me. So this was not his finest hour. I appreciate him putting himself out there and, and getting people to be concerned, like pay attention. This is not just a Silicon Valley issue. This is not just a, a minor little area affecting some tech people. There is going to be broader, broader, broader ramifications if we don't do something, if the government doesn't get involved, but you know, everybody handles crisis different. My mother was really not good in day-to-day stuff. Just like, like she just wasn't, she was a wonderful person, but day-to-day was not great. But man, was that lady great in crisis. I mean, holy moly, if there was a crisis or my friends had a crisis or whatnot, my mother could deliver. And, you know, there's a rare person that's sort of great day to day and great in crisis. Jason, maybe not his best moment, wasn't great in crisis. He proceeded to just tweet crazy tweets, create like this is this is crazy. Like we're going to all die. Basically, he didn't say that, but he did put out one of the things he since deleted, but is everywhere was he put out a Mad Max gif and said in all caps, like, go get your guns. Who isn't getting loading up on guns, provisions, gas? I mean, really dark crazy stuff that can incite panic, fear, and runs on other banks. And that's sort of what started to happen. And, you know, there was a moment where it just felt like everything, the sky was falling. And I will say, I heard from so many people who asked me to reach out to Jason and I, and I did, but just like, just tone it down, like take the all caps off. There was also criticism by people outside of this. And I know Jason and David were actually doing their best to try to communicate this on Twitter, but I think so much noise and so much fear, and this was all over and it was, people don't understand nuance and people don't necessarily understand the inside baseball of it. So back to Silicon Valley Bank, the name was its worst PR 
of this whole thing. And it, you know, to no fault of its own. When Silicon Valley Bank started in the 80s, it was apparently a very sort of humble offering and Silicon Valley was a very different place. But now the way that the certainly America viewed Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley Bank is it just must be a bank for rich people. And this is just rich people getting upset because they're losing their money, but they'll be fine ultimately. And we, the rest of America, are laughing and seeing how the rich people are losing their minds over losing their money, just like we've been losing our money our whole lives, basically. But the problem was that that just isn't true. Silicon Valley Bank, yes, of course, caters to the rich in many ways, but those companies have employees that are not rich and those employees were going to suffer. They were not going to get paid. That bank also has companies that have customers and so forth that are not rich, but then they would not be able to pay. So there's that trickle down, not to mention that the beneficiaries of so much of that bank's profits were pension funds, which are not for the rich and foundations, which were, you know, are an incredible organizations that are um, out there trying to raise capital for changing the world in many ways, depending on what their categories are. So it was, it, it's, it's a misnomer. And there was a lot of talk, like if Silicon Valley Bank had had a generic name or if it had like farmer's bank or whatnot, there would be a very different reaction, but be it as you will, there was that sort of like, ha ha rich coming down. And then of course it became a political issue and you had these guys demanding government getting involved. Then you had all these people calling them hypocrites because apparently they had presented themselves in their minds as libertarians, which means you don't want government involved. There's also misunderstandings. Like I don't think David or any of those people were calling for a bailout, but everybody sees like government getting involved equals a bailout and I'm not going to get into the intricacies there. But again, it just shows you how in this viral moment, and this is pop culture because it came everywhere. It was like the top five stories in Daily Mail. Once you get to the Daily Mail, multiple stories, it is pop culture because that's where the mainstream like it or not, are going to get their sort of news and what's happening. And people were talking about it. It was everything on Twitter and Instagram and TikToks. Everybody was talking about this SVB collapse and everybody had their own take. Everybody became an expert. I cannot tell you how many fucking people were out there like, I may be no expert, but this is what I would do. It's like, no, no, no back up. And this is where you saw clout coming out. And then there was this one asshole who I'm not even going to mention his name, but he put out a tweet that turns out to be misinformation where he'd heard that First Republic, which was the second bank everybody started talking about as being the next victim of this bank run, because it's also a small bank and caters to a lot of entrepreneurs and tech people and people are trying to get their money out, that First Republic had stopped processing and all of their payments and this and that. And so First Republic had to come out with a statement and then explain what they were doing. And as bad a job as Silicon Valley Bank did in communicating what was going on. First Republic did an amazing job. So again, looking at comms, if you go back, like they were so clear, they were very timely, they were thoughtful, they communicated, they communicated using social, they communicated using emails. It was a really, really, really phenomenal job and a complete opposite end of the spectrum of what Silicon Valley Bank did. And, and so not saying we're out of this, but the world is not ending. The financial crisis is not like it was in 2008. I have been now recording for 23 minutes about a bank, which I never thought I would do in the world of pop culture. But I'm going to end with the fact that this shows how fucked up we are as a society. Like there's been so much progress and we, we applaud ourselves. I mean, my God, we had Obama as president. We've had so much progress. And then you look at the last few years and it feels like we've just gone backwards. You know, this whole now mentality 
where the right has, you know, the Tucker Carlson's and these disgusting people in the world have lodged onto this now like clickable and sensational headline, which is go woke and go broke. Like the fact that this term woke has been weaponized in and of itself is crazy. And you can see the master manipulation happening again, going to the daily mail. You just see that like it's, it's, it's changing the brain and DNA of people. So this fucker whose name I'm like, I, I can't even believe I remember this guy's name, Andy Kessler. I am sorry for anybody related to this man, but also to the editors of the wall street journal. So Andy Kessler wrote an op-ed for the wall street journal. And for any of you who might not be familiar, an op-ed is an opinion piece and the journal can sort of publish things that they wouldn't have a journalist, right? That is controversial because it's an opinion piece. But these opinion pieces, first of all, are they're either reach, the, the people who write them are either reached out to by the publication and say, we'd really like your thoughts on this. Or that person goes to the editor and say, I have an idea. I want to write it. And there is a process. I've worked on a lot of op-eds. There is a process. You write something, an editor still edits it. They don't run it word for word, how you submit it. There's editing, there's moving around. So the fact that the editor of the Wall Street Journal of the op-ed section allowed this is preposterous. So there was an article that came out, I believe it was on Monday, an article, an op-ed by Andy Kessler. And it actually starts off really great. It's a very sound explanation of what went down. A sort of, this is what happened, very dry, but very concise and cogent sort of look at what went down in the SVB crisis. And then at the end, I mean, at the end of this article, I am at a loss because the man goes off the rails and he tries to um, make a case that the reason SVBs failed is because they were putting a lot of attention onto the diversity that they had in their board. And so let me just read it. Was there regulatory failure? Perhaps. SVB was regulated like a bank, but looked more like a money market fund. Then there's this. In its proxy statement, SVB notes that besides 91% of their board being independent and 45% women, they also have one black, one LGBTQ plus, and two veterans. I'm not saying 12 white men would have avoided this mess, but the company may have been distracted by diversity demands. I mean, could you fucking imagine this gets published in the Wall Street Journal, the the journal of record for the finance community? Yes. Owned by Rupert Murdoch. Is This is despicable. There's so many things despicable about it. They clearly did it to get attention. I certainly put it out on Twitter and got a huge amount of of uh, interaction on it. And I purposely did not put the article with my pull out quote because I didn't want to provide clicks, but other people have. And, you know, I sounded the alarm with a lot of people, but it was already out there that morning. It just, it, it's one of those things that you read and you just go like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is the mindset that we're in. Could you imagine making that connection that maybe because, oh my God, there is women and, and a person of color and a LGBTQ plus and, and two veterans that they were so focused on being a diverse board and being woke that they weren't paying attention to the to the details. It's just absurd. And this absurdity 
continues and is growing. And it's something that we all need to keep an eye on. And it's something that you should all fight back on and push back on because the fucking crazies are winning, man. It's crazy. If you look at the numbers of Fox News and you look at the numbers of Daily Mail, it's it's absurd and it's a brainwashing and it's it's just absurd. So, okay. Can I, can I be done with that rant now? I never want to talk about banking or financing again. I'm a Chase customer, happy. I'm so bored. Life is great. The other story that I spoke a lot about, and I got so much feedback from my friends across the pond, was Gary Lineker. And Gary Lineker, for those of you who don't know, is like a superstar. There are some crazy superstars in the UK that are treated more like people will stop them on the street, will run after them. Jeremy Clarkson is one. We've talked about him before. I've seen it firsthand. Uh, that's another podcast. But then there is Gary Lineker. And Gary Lineker is a football star. He played professional football, aka soccer, and has been a sports caster now at BBC for almost 30 years. He's had his own show there for almost 30 years. He's beloved. He That means he's been in, and it was Jeremy Clarkson that said this to me when I, I was trying to get an understanding of that fame. And, you know, it's different in the UK for a variety of reasons, but still the same mindset, even different than movie stars. When somebody's on your TV in your house on a daily basis, they become like family, like familiar. So when you see them out in the wild, it's sort of like, you're like my brother, my father, my boyfriend, my husband, my whatever. You start to think that way and it becomes this like familiarity. And Gary Lineker had that and and used his platform for amazing things. But he's been in people's homes, in their living rooms, on their televisions for almost 30 years as a sportscaster. He is a big voice in the refugee movement and what's been happening with with refugees in the UK. My understanding is he's uh, taken in refugees in his own home. He's been very outspoken. He's on the BBC. The BBC is the preeminent sort of national station. You have radio, you have TV channels. It's imagine if we didn't have NBC, ABC, CBS, which are private companies, we had PBS as the main hub of all of our sort of heart and soul. So if all of the sports and all of the news that we sort of got came from PBS, right? So as as small as PBS is, imagine flipping that. And that's really where that is. And what that means is that taxpayers pay for the BBC. So the BBC has to remain impartial in, in that way because they're catering to all of the taxpayers, not one particular taxpayer. So the understanding was that you could not share your view, your personal views on BBC. But as people start to have other platforms like Twitter, like YouTube, like TikTok, there were like some rules in place. And the understanding was if you could share, you know, your opinions on other platforms did not mix in with BBC. So Gary Lineker, who's an avid tweeter, started talking about the the new probably illegal immigration policy that is being put forth by this now conservative government in the UK. And it has been met with a growing amount of criticism. It is, it, it, it is soulless and cruel at the very least, possibly and probably illegal. 
And it is, it is just a travesty. Now it is a problem. They are, what's happening is these small boats or even unseaworthy vessels are coming into England where refugees are escaping. And they are generally, I've been to places to meet with refugees and understand their experience. And I was in Poland to see what was happening in Ukraine. And I was in Greece to see what was happening with Turkey and Syria and Ethiopia. And it's, it's unbelievable. And these are, I would say, majority of people are really just escaping for their lives. They are escaping places that have regimes that are torturing and killing people. They are escaping for persecution of their religion, their sexuality, their race, their sex. They are escaping poverty. They are escaping abuse. These are real things. And the border crisis is a crisis, but the people have been coming in on boats and lots of people are dying because these boats are sinking or whatnot. And I understand that the UK government is trying to put forth this very, very, very sort of Orwellian conservative policy that if anybody comes in off a boat, it doesn't matter, they will be deported back like immediately into these, like instead of going into these camps or into other sort of safe havens, they will be deported and it's a lot of, of, of controversy around it. So Gary Lineker put out a tweet basically saying this is just an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the utmost vulnerable. And he went on and then he compared it to similar language coming out of Germany in the 1930s without saying what he without being literal. He just sort of alluded to what we're hearing from the UK is very similar to what started to happen in Germany in the early 1930s, which we know what that led to. So. The BBC suspended Gary over that tweet and there was an uproar. People couldn't believe it and there was outrage. And it's so funny because people, I think, in America now have been sort of brain dumped about thinking of the UK as a racist country around this whole Harry and Meghan thing. Like we've been inundated with the UK's racist, the royal family's racist. I'm not saying they're not, by the way. I don't think one has to do with the other. But now we're seeing the flip side where all of these people came in support of Gary and people you wouldn't necessarily think of. A lot of his uh, colleagues walked out and people would not do their shows. They didn't air football or something like I can't speak to that perfectly, but the shows that had never not aired stopped airing. People just absolutely rallied around Gary. And as my friend Chrissy said, Gary has always been a legend. This makes him legendary. Schedules ripped to shreds. A normal football heavy Saturday's viewing all now pulled. Gary Lineker was stood down from presenting tonight's match of the day after he tweeted that the government was using language reminiscent of 1930s Germany about their policy banning people from illegally arriving on boats in the UK. Lineker was soon followed by pundits Alan Shearer, Alex Scott and Ian Wright who all tweeted they would not be appearing in an act of solidarity. What they're doing again is like the culture war they want us to all have. Left versus right. Woke, oh, you're woke, you're woke. That is the distraction. And this, I'll tell you something. If BBC get rid of Gary Lineker, I'm out. I'm gone. I'm not staying there. That was then followed by a near blanket boycott from all sports reporters and presenters across all BBC outlets. TV and radio. He's now reinstated, but the BBC has taken an absolute hit. You had, you know, Alistair Campbell out there. You had celebrities out there just all just tearing them a new one about their their hypocrisy and the contradiction of their rules. And so it's a whole hot mess. We'll see what happens. And then speaking about the UK, if you guys watch the Oscars, maybe you didn't watch the Oscars, you know what happened, but you've read 
my newsletter, you've listened to the pod, you know how much I love that Charlie Mackesy, who is the creator of the boy, the horse, the mole and the fox, or is it the boy, the fox, the mole and the horse? Uh, I don't have it in front of me. It's beautiful. It's one of my favorite books. And it was an incredible animated short film made by Charlie and Matthew Freud, dear friends, um, as well as uh, um, Bad Robot and J.J. Abrams and that whole group. And they won an Oscar. And it's the first movie Matthew and Charlie have ever made and legendary. They come out and they uh, they win the Oscar and they gave great speeches. There has been some controversy about their speeches. I will not lie. Apparently, um, and I, I didn't clock this while I was watching, but the previous winners of a, of, a, of a category were two women and they were two women of color and they were not given the time where one person was able to accept the award. And when the second woman came up to speak, they played her off with the music. And in this case, Matthew and Charlie were not played off. My belief is that maybe very cleverly, Matthew gave the first part of the speech, but the real, the animator, the creator was Charlie. And so they couldn't play him off. But who's to say, I don't know. Their speeches were great. They both talked about their dogs. Um, Matthew gave the award to Vincent the dog, which is a beautiful dog. So congratulations to them. And then just lastly, there are a couple of things that have happened this week that you may see in your social feeds. One is this big controversy and big drama around a very, very famous Hollywood fashion stylist whose name is Law Roach, who is famous for, I mean, his his style is unbelievable. He's been styling uh, Zendaya for some time, Megan Thee Stallion. I mean, the list goes on and on. He's remarkable. His his fashion is unbelievable. We saw lots and lots of it at the Oscars red carpet in the Vanity Fair party. He posted something on Instagram on Wednesday or Tuesday, rather, I believe, where it was just an um, image that said retired. And he then said, I'm out. Basically, he's like, if fashion was just about dressing people, I would do it all day for the rest of my life. But it's not. It's about politics and behind the scenes and false narratives and lies. And you win. I'm out. And so everybody's up in arms. It's like, what is he talking about? The thing that's trending right now is that apparently recently he was at the Louis Vuitton fashion show. He was there with Zendaya and he himself is a celebrity. And there is video of Zendaya sitting in the front row and sitting with some other celebrities, as well as the the Renault, the family whose name I'm not going to remember, the French family that owns the LVMH and all of that stuff. And there was not a front row seat for Law Roach. And he was, he was Zendaya pointed to the row behind her. People are trying, and apparently, at least the socials are saying he was so indignant over that and offended. But I'm sure there's more to that. There may have been some political stuff in the background and whatever it is, he's an artist and he's sensitive and he did not get the respect he probably deserved. And here we are. So that is a story playing out in, I mean, every TikTok and Instagram and lots of celebrities have, have asked him to rethink his, his uh, retirement. So we're there. And then lastly, really big news, Ryan Reynolds, who is a movie star. He is, um, God, I first met Ryan Reynolds or maybe only met Ryan Reynolds. It must have been 1997. He was on this show, Two Guys, A Girl in a Pizza Place. And I had a friend um, who I haven't seen in a gazillion years, if you're listening. Hi, Rick Wiener, who is the showrunner of that show, which I had no idea what that meant. I met him when I was like on a college uh, holiday, down, walking down the beach and I wasn't in Santa Monica, but wherever. 
or Manhattan Beach, I think. And I met this guy and we became friends. And then I moved out to California and he let me stay on his couch. And he was a showrunner of the show, Two Guys, A Girl, and A Pizza Place. And I, and I'll never forget, like the opening for that song, that show was The Bare Naked Ladies. And I got to know The Bare Naked Ladies. This is, I mean, I'm not even joking, guys, 1996, 1995, 1997, like one of those. And Ryan was the star of that show and was just like a kid, a nice Canadian kid. He was so sweet. He was such a nerd. He was the nicest guy, like humble, sweet, just like, oh, nice to meet you. Just, I was obviously very, uh, unfamiliar with meeting famous people at that time, but he wasn't that famous. He was just this kid on this new show that was like a hit show. Anyway, he, we all know Ryan Reynolds now. He is a movie star in his own right with Deadpool, whatnot. He's married to a like one of my favorite people, Blake Lively. I don't know her personally, but I just like her vibe. And he's also an entrepreneur. As we know, he has this incredible like advertising marketing company that has produced some of the world's most famous ads, like that Peloton ad with Mr. Big. There have been some others. He's just incredible. He was also a co-founder of Aviation Gin, which we all know what happened there. It got sold for a gazillion dollars. And he was also one of the owners of Mint Mobile and his ownership stake has not been released, but Mint Mobile just sold to, I believe it was T-Mobile for $1.35 billion. And it is a budget wireless provider. I don't know if that's all cash, I think that's cash and equity. And it's probably going to be like where Mint has to meet some, some numbers. So we'll see if it actually plays out. But regardless, this is, this is proof that Ryan Reynolds is like a handsome movie star, seemingly really kind has a huge sense of humor and an incredible entrepreneur, incredible creative. And I don't know, kind of amazing to see. And you love to see it because some of these guys, you know, they just do it for the, they put money in and they're not really involved. It seems like Ryan really, really sweats this stuff and does the work. I'm gonna do this the old fashioned way with two swords and maximum effort. Okay, people think that you can't talk to yourself for 42 minutes, but I am here to prove them wrong. I'm glad I didn't have a guest on because I, I don't know if I would have given them any time to talk. Anyway, I will do my Mary Makeout Mute right now. So my mute is all caps, Twitter. Love you, Jake Howe. But let's just like, let's just quiet the room a little bit. Just let's soften it. Soften. I don't want to see all caps. I actually love using caps in the newsletter to show emphasis because it's how I talk. But I dedicated this newsletter to a no all caps moment. So I did not use it except for I had to break my own rule when I was talking about that jackass in the Wall Street Journal blaming diversity for the fall of SVB. I will marry Ryan Reynolds. I will. I'm sorry. I, I'm sure he's got his hands full with like a house full of kids and the beautiful Blake Lively. And I just, I just want to marry into that family. Not even thruple, not, not sexual. Just like, I just want to be in that vibe. I just want to like, be like, Hey guys, like, how'd you sleep? What's going on? What's, what's on the daily agenda today? What's your checklist look like, Ryan? How many things are you going to conquer at the end of the day? So that would be fun. And I would make out with, I want to make out with the dogs of Charlie Mackesy and Matthew Freud. I know their dogs and I've been kissed by those dogs and it was so nice to see those dogs mentioned at the Oscars. And so I would just be sort of making out with those dogs in the UK because English dogs are fancier and they're just better, frankly, except for Potato who has an English accent in my mind. 
Okay. Well, that's it. I am, I am off to South by Southwest. I can't believe I'm saying that. I am going to see some of the people I just named on this podcast. I am going to play some poker. I'm going to hang out with some friends. And until next time, I'm sure we'll report on that next week. And I'll talk to you guys next Thursday. Pop culture.